Unearthed Memphis, your Memphis history podcast with hosts Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. Hey everybody, welcome back to Unearthed Memphis. We hope you all enjoyed our Halloween episodes. They were quite fun to research and write, and we of course love a good ghost story. Yeah, we do. Thanks again to those who sent us spooky stories as well. We can't wait till next year till we get to do it again. And maybe we'll do it again before Halloween of next year. Oh, we most definitely will. Probably so. <laughs> All right, this episode, we had originally planned for it to come out in September. But, of course, as you all know, there was the great computer crash of 2020. <laughs> so we held off recording it because we wanted to do the Halloween episodes. But I was kind of bummed because it seemed very timely giving the passing of the notorious RBG, mm-hmm. whom I love. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the voice for women. She fought every day for gender equality. And because of her work, a woman is allowed to have a bank account in her name, buy a house in her name, have a credit card in her name, clearly get into debt in her own name, (laughs) Uh, but nevertheless not be denied admittance to state-funded schools. She helped preserve a woman's right to have control over her body, protect pregnant women in the workplace, and participate on a jury. Not to mention, she also fought for civil rights for all people. So Justice Ginsburg was the voice for women in a government severely lacking in women. But given that Kamala Harris is the new VP-elect, this story once again has become even more relevant. Yeah, it has. Uh, This story is about Clara Conway and the school she opened to ensure ladies could survive without a man in a time when women were entirely dependent on men for their survival. And this next quote is from a student uh, from the Clara Conway Institute. And while it sounds like a quote from Buffy, it is not. (laughs) So once in a generation, there is born one who envisions conditions as they should be, a dreamer. Such as this was Clara Conway. To most of us, she sat Minerva-like upon a mystic throne, incomparably wise, brilliant and resourceful, impressing upon each one who passed within the space of her influence the importance of her motto, Neglect not the gift that is within thee, or the other motto she loved so well, Influence is responsibility. Clara Conway was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, August 14, 1844 to poor Irish immigrants, Margaret Reardon Conway and Thomas Conway, who came to America in the early 19th century. And I've read that she came to Memphis in 1846, that she was brought to Memphis in 1855 when her parents died, but also that she simply moved here in 1864. Uh, She was educated in St. Agnes Academy of Memphis, but primarily studied at home for most of her education. She also did some studying abroad. So given that information, it would seem the 1855 date would be more accurate. Right, right. Conway began her professional career as a public school teacher. It was said that she seemed possessed of the natural gifts particularly qualifying her for the work of teaching. Her peculiar abilities for imparting knowledge and inspiring to effort, all with whom she came in contact were of such rare value as to quickly re- be quickly recognized. She became the principal for the Alabama Street School and the Market Street School. And the Market Street School, at the corner of Market Street and 3rd Street, was considered the first real school in Memphis, opening its doors in 1872. She was considered an outstanding teacher and was frequently featured in newspapers. She was the first woman to assist in the organizations of teachers' institutes. In 1873, she was proposed for superintendent of public schools in Memphis in an effort to have female educators recognized for their merits. 
and she was endorsed by the Memphis Appeal, who wrote, We are in receipt of several letters from persons connected with the public school system of Memphis and others who have a direct personal interest in them, advocating for the election of Miss Clara Conway to the position of superintendent of public schools, and the only reason we have for rejecting them was their length. They all exceeded the limits we have named for correspondence. To the election of Miss Claire Conway to so high and responsible a position, we can see no objection. She possesses all the ability requisite for it with the experience of several years as an educator, Claire Conway being the principal of the Alabama Street School for several years. To the gentleness and refinement of a cultivated lady, she invites all the firmness requisite to the director of our schools. We do not know a man in our city who can surpass her in fitness. If Miss Clara Conway will accept the position, she has the hearty support of the appeal, and we hope she will be elected. And she clearly made a good impression on people to have a newspaper endorse her for a job that only men had held. Right. The efforts to elect a female superintendent ultimately failed, and Miss Conway's name was not even mentioned in the election. Boo. Boo on them. But nevertheless, the call for a female superintendent was a brilliant maneuver. The failure exposed the powerlessness of women to protect their interest as long as they lacked the rights to participate in the electoral process. So over time, Conway found herself becoming more interested in providing women with the ability to have a quality education. Her study of educational methods inspired within her the desire to establish a system of education for girls— no boys allowed, it even says so in the newspaper article, uh, which would be based on absolute thoroughness. Her idea was that women should be taught so that if conditions made self-support necessary, they could be, they could fill professional careers. Conway was the first Southern woman to attend the teacher's summer school in the North. She recognized the need for a school for girls in Memphis that would offer such educational advantages as those that were offered at the best schools in the North. Conway visited schools in the North for six months in the winter of 1876 for the purpose of making a careful and thorough study of the best modern school systems. In 1877, she left her position in the public school sector and founded a school of higher education for girls, one that would prepare them for economic independence. She believed education to be a woman's liberation. It would be what would prepare them to take part in the work of the world. She believed that society had little use for idle, helpless women as it did for idle, helpless men. She believed independence was one of the highest attributes of womanhood. She would also say that the woman's highest duty is first and foremost to herself, not her husband. And I concur. Me too. (laughs) Conway's school began with $300 of borrowed money, 50 students, and one assistant. Her school had a kindergarten, a new idea for Memphis, where young children would start out with a good foundation, well preparing them for the future. Young students would learn free hand drawing to help with their technical skills, hand, eye, and mind coordination. In an ad from 1879, Conway pleads to parents saying that no parent should deprive a little one of this beautiful mental, moral, and physical health care giver. Conway put a lot of stock in educating children from a young age. For older students, there was a myriad of subjects to learn and events to participate in. Conway's goal was to create a college preparatory school for girls so they would be able to attend the best Eastern women's colleges. Breadth, thoroughness, and development of power were aims of the school. These aims were gained by tailoring each student's studies based on their individual needs. A noble, self-reliant womanhood is the chief end sought throughout the years of school life. 
The number of students at the Institute continued to grow, and it was apparent that schools needed trained teachers. Conway decided to add a normal department, which is a school for training teachers, so that would-be teachers would have a place to learn and practice. And this not only benefited Conway's school, but other schools as well. Her students went on to teach in various locations. In the summer of 1882, Conway went to Europe in preparation for taking her students abroad a couple years later. This feature would allow students to add travel to their fields of study, visiting famous historical scenes and learning about literature, art, and architecture. In 1884, the school had grown to 250 students and around 10 teachers. During the summers, Conway would take her teachers to a normal institute in Martha's Vineyard, where she herself had taken courses. Also in 1884, Conway went to the National Educational Association in Madison, Wisconsin, and read a paper she had written on the needs of Southern women. The Memphis Daily Appeal wrote an article on her speech, and here's an excerpt from the article. A plea for the education of women in the South. She blew away the 6,000 teachers convened at the National Educational Association meeting. Her name was on every tongue, not necessarily because of what she said, but how she said it. Her earnestness was intense. Her lips quivered with emotion, and a glow came into her pale cheeks, while her brilliant black eyes flashed an accompaniment to the fire of her tones. Her discourse was a plea for the women of her section, who she declared were in need of educational advantages, now denied them. Clara focused on the fact that there was scarcely a college that was available to women in the South. She led with the example that a boy may find the best university while his sister, even though she might be a superior mentally, having the same or higher ambitions, aspirations, and hopes, must go to far-off colleges for a full education or must be content with the superficial course of the Down Academy or fashionable boarding school. She debunked the myths of women being able to get married for financial support and posed the questions, what if she doesn't? What if she does, but then she's left alone with her children to support? What if she can sew, if she has that ability, but it's not a sustainable profession? What if she can teach? What if she's not qualified and doesn't understand the child's mind in order of their true development? Teacher's work is sacred. Had she the opportunity for a proper education, maybe I could have helped her, but that was only offered to her brother. We have educated our girls to believe that their very helplessness is the best appeal to the helpfulness of some man who will one day become the protector and breadwinner. If you were to say that this is what God meant in the beginning, I have no means of determining what God meant. Evil in the world today is rampant. Hundreds of women and children are without protectors and what is worse, unable to protect themselves. Your argument would have some force, a very little, if every woman married happily and could have a guarantee, signed, sealed, and delivered that her husband should be strong, temperate, competent, and long-lived. But it has no force at all, while unmarried women are on every hand and orphaned children fill the air with their piteous limitations. The promise of a happy home and wifehood cannot be given. In the face of the glaring and terrible stories of desertion, cruelty, and murder that fill our papers, do you tell me that a woman should not be fitted for a life of work as well as a man? There is a senseless prejudice against the liberal education of women which finds its best expression in the term strong-minded, applied to any woman who thinks, reads, and reasons. It is said that such women are not fond of the home, that they neglect its duties, and find their chief happiness elsewhere. The end of the paper, she goes on to debunk this as well, naming numerous educated women who tend not only to their occupations, but also their homes. 
As the number of Clara's students increased, the need for a larger building was apparent. In 1884-85, a board of trustees was formed from a number of the city's most influential businessmen. The school was incorporated and a stock formed, allowing the building of a new school. The Clara Conway Institute, as it is now called, rightly boasted a top-notch reference library, a well-equipped gym for gaining a firm step, a graceful carriage, and a strong, well-developed form, a science lab for the study of chemistry and physics, and even an art studio. Courses were offered in voice, piano, music theory, public speaking, trigonometry, art history, philosophy, political economy, and civil government. Elocution lessons prepared the way for an excellent, well-formed speech. There was a three-year literature course with an in-depth study of Shakespeare as well as German and French authors. By 1891, it had over 300 students and 26 faculty, some of which had graduated from the Institute and had a building worth $75,000. There was also an off-campus residence hall for students that came from away. The school was thriving, and the students were so well-educated that some were admitted to schools such as Vassar without examination, and Wellesley recommended and recognized it for its excellence. And those are both prestigious women's colleges in the North, for those who don't know. (laughs) In Conway's quest for higher education, she continued to write papers and do interviews, emphasizing the need for women's colleges in the South. In a paper she wrote for the Eagle publication, Conway says that while we have great primary, secondary, and high schools for girls, there is no Vassar or Wellesley, Holyoke, Bryn Mawr, or Smith. Our girls have to travel far from home for college culture or do without. A large majority cannot leave home for apparent reasons, money and ability to travel, and they're at a great disadvantage because they are of able mind and their training is absolutely essential. She pleads for a college in the South so magnificently endowed with provisions for student aid that no good girl in search of an education would be turned away. It should combine all the requirements and the best discipline and instruction. Its foundation should be laid in the thorough training of the English language according to the most approved methods. There should be a department of domestic economy so well equipped that every graduate of the college might be prepared not only for housekeeping but for homekeeping. In another article written about Conway and her accomplishments, she expresses that interest to start a college in the South. She believed $500,000 would be sufficient to start the school. It would ensure a small cost and the ability to provide some scholarships. Unfortunately, that dream of Conway's would not come to pass. By 1893, Conway's ambition of being a college preparatory school over the opposition of the trustees was likely the cause of the Institute's demise. Her emphasis on independence for women and urging graduates to attend progressive eastern Eastern colleges may have been too much for the all-male trustee board. She tried to reassure them that practical housekeeping was also taught and reminded them that ignorant women made bad wives and mothers, but to no avail. The school closed. Conway continued to teach by herself for a few more years before ultimately stopping to help further another cause she had involved herself in, the 19th Century Club. In the spring of 1890, a small group of Memphis elite women formed a club dedicated to the intellectual development of women. It would become one of the South's foremost female organizations. This group elected Mrs. Robert C. Brinkley as the first president. And if you'll recall from the last episode, that name should sound familiar. Mr. Robert C. Brinkley started the Brinkley Female College, where a pink Lizzie showed up. Right, yeah. She had impeccable social credentials and was a leader in Memphis society. Her husband was also influential in the business community. 
With Brinkley and 15 charter members, Conway included, they formed the club. In early May, the newly donned 19th Century Club had gained a total of 80 members, and in a meeting at the Gaysville Hotel, they wrote the Constitution and the bylaws. Their motto was coined by Conway, influence is a responsibility. The club's constitution stated that their objective was to promote female intellect by encouraging a spirit of research in literary fields and provide an intellectual center for the women of Memphis. They actively engaged in moral, philanthropic, and educational projects. It provided a means for intellectual women to implement their ideas about the direction of the city's growth. They would strive to improve civic pride and elevate civic ideals. And while they claimed not to have any political intentions, it was clear that they were intent on involving themselves in politics. They wanted Memphis to become a vibrant, people-filled city, which included parks, schools, hospitals, asylums, and playgrounds, and they attempted to influence city officials to get that done. The story of the 19th Century Club is an interesting one, and in order to do it justice, we will be dedicating an entire episode to it at some point. Conway published a book in 1902 called Silver Line Days, Leaves from a Notebook of Old World Travel and the Experiences of Traveling in Europe at the Turn of the Century. Miss Clara Conway passed away in November of 1904 and is buried at Calvary Cemetery. And Clara Conway was a pioneer for women's independence. Her tenacity and drive for what she believed in made her well-respected, not only in Memphis, but around the country, and her legacy will continue to live on as people learn of the great things she accomplished. And this is the story of Clara Conway and her contribution to helping the women of Memphis gain strength and independence. Thanks, Clara. Thanks, Clara. Which, again, I, I feel like it's a little little more relevant with the current environment that we're in it's right Quite now. relevant, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the story we unearthed. Don't forget to listen to our next episode in two weeks. It'll drop on Wednesday on your favorite podcast listening app. Check out our website at unearthmemphis.com. Follow us on Instagram at unearthmemphis. Facebook at facebook.com slash unearth901. Twitter at unearth901. Or drop us an email at unearthmemphis at gmail.com. We love to hear from everybody. Uh, questions, comments, suggestions, corrections, or just chatter is appreciated and enjoyed. Yes, very much so. We love chattering. Yeah, just with talk people. about whatever, even if you just want to say hi. Exactly. And so here's our disclaimer We are not historians. We are simply two people who are interested in Memphis history. We have done research and are trying to provide accurate history as best we can. There is a possibility some of these statements are incorrect, but we have tried to verify all the info so that we're not putting out any untrue info. To the best of our knowledge, what we are saying is correct, but let us know if you have any things to add or correct. In the show notes, you'll find links to the articles we used and book titles, etc. to gather our information. Yep. All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Unearth Memphis is written, produced, and engineered by Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. The music was written, performed, and recorded by Donnie Wayne Smith and Alan Compton. 